Welcome back to the Tasty Morsels of Critical Care podcast. And today we're talking about dead space. While it may sound um, like something from the expanse, uh, we're actually talking about the physiological concept of dead space here. Now this is pretty core physiology that crops up in clinical practice all the time, so I think it's probably worth thinking about. As usual, this represents a sort of idiot's guide to the topic, with the idiot being me, with just enough information to scrape by an exam and in clinical practice. But um, the caveat is this likely comes with large gaps, simplifications and occasional frank errors in the description. So to start with the definition, so you could define dead space as the fraction of tidal volume which does not participate in gas exchange. But let's be clear, the word participation here refers more to an inability rather than some kind of surly choice by the dead space fraction not to participate, as it didn't get picked for football till last. The dead space fraction never has the option of participating in gas exchange as it never reaches any functional gas exchange surface. At its most basic, and of course that's the form I'm interested in, it can be split into apparatus dead space, number one. So this is the amount of gas in the ventilator circuit and associated dongles, things like an endotracheal tube or an NIV mask or a HME. Um, and then number two, physiological dead space. You can split that physiological dead space further into anatomic, um, which is really the gas in the conducting airways. And then secondly, alveolar dead space, which is gas that exists in non-perfusing alveoli. So physiological dead space takes up roughly about 20 to 30% of the tidal volume at rest. As mentioned above, it splits into two components, this physiological dead space, anatomic and alveolar. And as you can imagine, the anatomic is pretty fixed. But the alveolar dead space can vary markedly depending on VQ matching, because at any given time, um, certainly in disease states, having gas in non-perfused alveoli may vary over time. Anatomic dead space is about 2 mils per kilogram, so that's about 150 mils. This is the gas in the conducting airways of the lung. But this will include in normal health the oropharynx, and that will be bypassed with the placement of an endotracheal tube, or even better, a tracheostomy. With both of these interventions reducing anatomic dead space. I think the most important clinical takeaway about anatomic dead space is that it's probably fairly fixed. Um, and if you assume a 2 mL per kg anatomic dead space, and if you're ventilating someone at 8 mL per kg and you want to reduce that to 6 mL per kg, the fraction of anatomic dead space in each breath goes from 20% to 33%. In other words, while you've only reduced the tidal volume by 20%, you've reduced the portion of gas participating in gas exchange by a third. Now, there is, of course, good evidence that a lower tidal volume is better, but in terms of clearing CO2, dropping the tidal volume disproportionately reduces the fraction of gas available at the alveolus and may cause issues with your CO2. Indeed, at some point, a rate reduction, so reduction in respiratory rate, rather than a tidal volume reduction, may be the more favourable factor to reduce overall mechanical power delivered to the lung. Now, that all seems very persuasive and logical, um, but it's countered by the simple fact that it just doesn't seem to be true when tested. In the deranged physiology article linked, um, they go through it very nicely, and it seems that at a very low tidal volume, gas exchange continues to be more effective than one might expect, likely due to two mechanisms beyond simple mass gas movement. So firstly, laminar flow occurs allowing a central column of gas to move in and out. And secondly, there is expiratory gas mixing. So this is basically diffusive gas mixing that ensures the right molecules are in the right place at the right time. Moving on to alveolar dead space, there are a number of things that might increase your alveolar dead space. So if you have a reduced cardiac output, eventually the lung, young, the lung units stop receiving perfusion. 
say if you've got bad parenchymal disease, um, even something like an interstitial lung disease, the airspace cavities are, are no longer um, getting effective perfusion due to the thickening of the interstitium and the, the distance that the gas has to diffuse across. How about um, high airway pressures? Even high airway pressures can increase the amount of alveolar dead space. Um, high airway pressures will ensure that your alveoli are aerated, but if the pressure is higher than the actual perfusion pressure for the capillaries going into that alveolus, that will limit blood flow into the lung unit. Um, fourthly, things like a pulmonary vascular occlusion, so the, the, the obvious example being a pulmonary embolism, um, and that kind of Increasing alveolar dead space is one of probably several mechanisms of hypoxia and pulmonary embolism. Um, and fifthly, posture. Um, so posture in particular will affect the west zone of particular lung units and that will kind of change things and will change whether units are perfused and ventilated or whether they're just perfused or whether they're actually just aerated. The main consequence of increased dead space will be primarily seen in your carbon dioxide um, with either hypercapnia or maybe you'll see a very high minute volume being driven by the fact that there's large dead space within the lungs. As noted in the alveolar gas equation, it will affect oxygenation much less than it will ventilation. So you'll be able to oxygenate with these people pretty fairly okay, but you'll struggle to clear CO2. Um, but eventually, of course, it will also impair oxygenation. For those for further reading, or at least uh, a more cogent description and something slightly more accurate, I would strongly recommend the Deranged Physiology article um, that gives a, a, a certainly a broad degree of detail, some lovely little references, uh, and goes into the actual process of measurement of dead space as well, which is dramatically complicated. The other resource that is also worth um, looking at is the unfortunately short-lived and much-missed Basic Science Clinic podcasts from Steve Morgan and Sophie Connolly that are probably now at least five, six years old, if not longer. Um, they do some really intense level of detail on gas exchange and ventilation and all the basic physiology. Uh, it's well worth checking out. Uh, once again, thanks again for listening and I'll see you again next time.